Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here. Welcome back to the at. <laughs> I read the wrong thing on the on the the at. Yeah. <laughs> that that will be our new official introduction. Postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah, it's all the secular people's fault, so no one's listening or coming <laughs> to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here. Welcome back to the Story Church podcast. This is part of our season five, and we are talking about the Adventist worship wars and how these wars are symptomatic of deeper issues in our church that severely impact our missional effectiveness, especially in post-church context. So um, yeah, welcome back. I'm excited to continue this conversation. We've got a few more uh, heavy themes to explore. So, uh, and I'm back with the brilliant Canadian sporting a gloriously long mane, Maxwell Aka, what's up, Yo. my bro? Hey, man! Thanks for having me back. Yeah, bro, it's good to have you back, man. We are dump- we are jumping into uh, a pretty big topic mm-hmm. that surrounds the conversation of music and the worship wars overall, and that is music and negative emotions. That's what we're talking about today. Oh, this is going to be intense, man. Um, oh, yeah, I've I've been to a lot of these seminars and I've heard a lot of these sermons that talk about this. And, um, you know, how music can put you, um, in a, can, can produce negative emotions that are, I don't know, unholy, I suppose. Um, and we use examples like Moses coming down the mountain and hearing the sound of music. And there's this argument between him and Joshua. It's not the sound of music. It's the sound of war that I hear. And, uh, you know, (laughs) and of course the music being used to worship the calf, and then there's these jumps made from there to you today. I talk about there's a kind of music that produces sacred emotions, and it's always white people music. And then there's a kind of music <laughs> that produces carnal emotions, anger, anxiety, um, confusion, sensuality. And that's basically every music that's not Anglo. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even just straight up pick on the, I'd say a sp- very specific type of, I don't know, high class culture Anglo. So anyways, I'm blabbing now. Talk to me about music and ne- negative emotions, Max. Yeah, man. I mean, you do a good job of, uh, introducing it there. You know, like it's, it's one of those things that, as you said, it gets brought up all the time. I don't know that it's necessarily the primary sticking point for a lot of people, but it's one of those things that, that like kind of lies under the surface. And I think more than anything, the, the way that people talk and think about emotions as they relate to music kind of, I think forms the more subconscious level of like people's biases, right? The things that people take for granted about their own snap judgments that they make, right? This, I mean, at the end of the day, we all respond emotionally to music, right? That's kind of the point in the first place. 
if we didn't want it to affect us emotionally, we would just read poetry, right? Like literally the entire, the entire point of music is that the sound creates in us this kind of metaphorical reference point for our other experiences in life, right? So emotion is our main contact point with music. Some people will try, like this is a, a kind of an aside, but some people will try to intellectualize music and sometimes even like to make up a word, mathify music a little bit. Um, it, it's it's one of those things. Um, I think that's in a some fantastic ways, word, by the way. Mathify, math, mathify. Yes, mathify. If Anthony Bossman is listening to this, listening to this at any point, I'd love his thoughts on the phrase mathify. Send me a PA, <laughs> send me send me a DM, uh, Anthony. Mathify. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> we can throw that at him on Twitter after we, we record can. this and just be like, "Hey, Anthony. so we we're podcasting and we came up with the word mathify. How do you feel?" And would you mathify that word for us? No context, but can you please mathify that word for us? That's it. Just tag him with no explanation. Just mathify. Yeah. But it's it's one of those things where, um, and this kind of ties into a thought I'd expressed in one of the previous episodes when we were talking about philosophy, right? There are some people who want to turn music and just the arts and humanities in general into something that is like calculable in terms of the hard sciences, right? And to just be like, oh, well, I, I was taking the readings from your amygdala and it seems like you were feeling aggressive, like, you know, things like that. Right. It's they want to be able to just have like hard numbers, quantifiable things that say, oh, well, if your whatever hormone levels go above this amount, then something morally evil is happening. And it, it really mm -hmm. is a case of like falsely trying to get an ought from an is. Uh, you know, for people who understand that, uh, you know, philosophical distinction. Um, but really, at the end of the day, people, I mean, people are right when they point out that there are mathematical elements to music. But one, they assume that we're using, you know, a Western musical framework with like a scale that has, you know, 12 half steps or, you know, seven or eight, depending on how you count it, notes in a, you know, scale. So, you know, not everyone does that. Not everyone divides the scale, you know, the space within an octave the same way. And so even our ideas of like music being mathematical are culturally relative. So it's really important for people to understand and to remember that music is more like language than it is like science. And even then it's a highly dialectized language. It is something that is also, it was actually, I think, Leonard Bernstein who said that music is a language, but it's an entirely metaphorical language. There is no literal speech in music. Everything is metaphorical. And when you get into that space where things are subjective and things are ooh, airy-fairy, and you have to talk about emotions and feelings and stuff like that, people who, who have a very rigid and like numbers-driven view of the world, I think might sometimes struggle to reconcile with it and just be like, oh, right. Like you have to do things like go with the flow here and allow yourself to be given over to the feeling in order to get what's going on in the song. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a metal guy, right? This is, this is one of the things that makes me kind of an odd duck often in Adventism because we're <laughs> kind of uncommon in the church. 
Um, not <laughs> I'm admittedly, absent. I'm admittedly not a metal guy, but that you know that's cool, right? And but this is yeah. the thing. One of the things that I've often noticed is that the assumptions and attitudes that people bring to the music, not even about the music, but actually about them, their own selves affect the way they respond to it. So, mm. you know, um, people will say, if I put on a song with like tons of screaming in it, I've heard people literally say to me, why are they screaming at me? Mm. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting because the reason I connect it with it is because I think of them as screaming with me or on my behalf, right? For mm. me, right? Mm. And it's it's the question of, can you identify yourself with the performer? Uh, can you mm -hmm. feel an emotional resonance with what's being expressed? Because mm. if you feel completely at odds with what's being expressed in a piece of music, if you feel like, for example, if you're the kind of person who's never actually reconciled yourself to your own anger, or you have anger issues, or you've been on the receiving end of someone's anger issues, hearing someone boisterously expressing anger could be very triggering, could be very even traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you, re you receive the art form as being hostile to you, antagonistic, mm -hmm. whereas someone else and i'm not saying that like everyone who's into that kind of music is like perfectly mentally healthy and in fact i think it's the opposite a lot of <laughs> us are messed up and we are depressed and we have anxiety and that's what draws us to it but if you're able to put yourself in the position of saying like oh that that is my voice not mm -hmm. literally but metaphorically that that person is saying what i've been struggling to say Hmm. making that emotional identification completely changes your relation, like the, the artist audience relationship, right? Yeah. From, yeah. from something that has a barrier between it to something that is a, a camaraderie, right? Hmm. Participatory. Yeah. Um, and yeah. this, this in its own way is like, I mean, the emotional connection between audience and performer, and this kind of ties into both like, the the sacrifice episode in terms of like environment and like worship space um and also this will tie in a bit to what we eventually talk about in the adventist history episode in terms of um again also the environment and the communal the community the communal mm. sense of participating in music the atmosphere mm. the the context the interpersonal relationships all of them feed into the experience of the music Right. Yeah. It's not just the music itself. Right. Mm. You know, there's uh, there's a band uh, that I listened to when I was a teenager and through my college years. They're called As I Lay Dying. They're a metalcore band, you know, distorted guitar, screaming, whatever. And I really, really identified with not just like thinking the music sounded cool, but also you know, I really I was like, wow, these lyrics are really meaningful and they helped me think about my life. Um, and then the lead singer of that band uh, kind of infamously committed a really horrendous crime, right? And th the music sounded the same to me, right? The, the music didn't change. All of their albums were still cool albums. But for me, subjectively, the knowledge of like what this guy had done that was like so over the top, like, wow. He tried to get someone killed, right? Like this, that's what happened, right? And and the fact that it was so heinous 
kind of tainted the experience of listening to the music for me. The style, yeah. I still like that style. I still like a bunch of bands that kind of sound the exact same as them. I still have fond memories of listening to that music, but something that itself is not the music interjected itself into my relationship with the artist. And that also affects my emotions in a way that kind of overrides my ability to be like, oh, this song pumps me up, right? And so when it comes to emotion at all, or in the overall sense, there are so many different factors that often don't get taken into consideration uh, by people, especially when it comes to like some of those more intangible things. Um, And I think that all, all of this is just a way for me to kind of you know, broadly introduce this and say, we have to be very careful before we make snap judgments about things and assume that like, you know, we, we shouldn't even assume that because someone is listening to a song that expresses a certain set of emotions that the person is even responding to it. Right. It could be, you know, I know I've been in situations where I'm like, I'm blasting some like really, really aggressive, really, really angry music during a time when I feel vulnerable and sad and like beaten down and weak even. And at that point, at some point, I'm like, I have to turn it off because like, it just, it doesn't mean anything to me right now. Cause it's not connecting to the energy that's coming off of me. Right. So there emotion is such a huge dynamic in music that's and right. to yeah. oversimplify it is, is just, I think irresponsible. And my Absolutely. dog agrees. I don't know if that's going to get in here. <laughs> hey, Rocky. Stop uh, with your death metal screams. <laughs> that that the, he he went for it, man. He really went Dude, for look, it. I totally feel you in in terms of this whole emotions thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mentioned this in previous episode. Um, my wife is studying psychology and counseling, mm-hmm. and a part of that study um, of that degree is studying statistics, which has right. to be the most horrendous university course any human being could ever take uh, but we were we were having a conversation about it last week because um she she's been you know she's she's almost done with her bachelor's and so she's doing um the stats and and, and one of the things that she mentioned to me was um that she's learned in the stats class and it ties in with something i mentioned uh, it was either the previous episode or two episodes ago it, it ties in pretty well with that that um when it comes to statistics when when you actually study statistics professionally Mm-hmm. Um, what you find is that the vast majority of statistics that you see in the news, in books, in even in research papers, the vast majority of them are unreliable. Yeah. And not only are they unreliable, um, and this, this taps into scientific studies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of them are, are unreliable, but not only are they generally unreliable, they're generally, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, oversimplified. They're oversimplified. Right. And so what you do then, you know, when we're talking about a situation like this where, where people cite studies or, or cite, you know, oh, this person, this part of their brain lit up while they were listening to this. So right. therefore, like the, the, from the is to the ought, as you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. that's actually like a really disingenuous way of yeah. dealing with research and science because – there is no ought out of that is. Right. All, the only thing we have out of that is, the is, this part of the brain lit up. The only thing we can pull from that is a whole bunch of guesses. 
Right. And those guesses are then subject to a supremely complex level of of layers and variables. So a person's background, you know, um, a person's personality, even their genetics and what they've inherited from from their from their family. Uh, so mm-hmm. a, a perfect example is a person might hear a song and that song reminds them of when they used to party hardcore in the clubs. Right. So when they hear that song, if they have a negative association with that party life, say it's something that they regret, there'll be negative emotion that's associated with that. Right. But a person who doesn't have that background won't get, won't get that same reaction at all. They might have a completely different reaction. That's just one layer of complexity. And that doesn't just apply to music. It applies to so many things. Like I'll give you an example. Um, on 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 Sabbath, I was getting ready to go preach at mm-hmm. one of my one of my churches, and I never wear suits and ties. I just I can't stand suits and ties. Um, right. To me, a tie is a colonial noose, um, mm-hmm. as uh, as the Maoris would say. <laughs> and right. the jacket, I just feel like really stuffy. I used to do it. I used to like them when I was like really conservative because I felt mm-hmm. they made me look holier. But to me, it's just. Mm-hmm. I just don't like them. And that's just for me. I'm not making a judgment call on other people who like wearing suits and ties. Please. Sure. I could I would never dream of that. But for me, I, I don't like them. So I, I dress decently, but I never really wear suits and ties unless I'm doing a wedding or a funeral. Um and so just joking around, I threw my my suit on and um like, oh, I'm gonna go preach at church wearing this today. And my wife was like, you know, it's so interesting. Like, she's like, being a psychology student, she's like super in tune with like emotional responses and triggers and stuff. And she's like, the moment I saw you in that suit, I had this sinking feeling in my stomach wow. because it reminded me of all the times I went to ultra conservative churches where the preachers always dress like that and how terrible their sermons would make me feel and the just the general attitude in those churches. So just the act of you wearing a suit made my stomach sink. And I was right. like, oh, well, thank God I was only kidding. You know, <laughs> put it back. <laughs> right. right. Um, but like someone who doesn't have that background in legalism might look at me wearing a suit and not think anything of it. There's like zero hey, reaction. Or nice they might they might think, oh, is this guy a politician or something? Like, why is he wearing a suit? You know, like if someone's right. deeply unchurched and, you know, like the only people they ever see in suits are politicians, you know? So like right. that simple layer of experience and triggers based on anchors, based on your experience in itself adds so much complexity to this part of the brain lit up that you can't make an ought out of that is, you know? Yeah. Um, and so what happens, generally speaking, is that when we see this type of research, what we automatically do is we run to the points that support our bias. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm trying to prove that this music puts people in a debaucherous sexual mood. So... Mm-hmm. That part of the brain lit up, even though it's that lighting up is associated with a gazillion other layers and factors and variables. I'm going to ignore all of that because I can make right. my point now, you know? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So that's one aspect of it that really frustrates me about the whole negative emotion and music thing. And the other aspect of it that really frustrates me, and I want you to speak into this because you have hinted at this already in terms of the imprecatory psalms and, and scripture. But mm. um, 
The other thing that really frustrates me with it is particularly in Anglo circles. Um, mm-hmm. what, and, and I, and I want to sort of clarify at least what, what I generally mean when I use the term Eurocentric or Anglo-centric. What, what I'm, I'm not talking when I use that phrase of – I'm not talking about race and, and, and I'm not talking about skin color. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Mm-hmm. What I'm referring to is a particular way of expressing yourself within European, more specifically, high culture. So, mm-hmm. for example, if you watched the wedding between Meghan Markle and was it Prince Harry? Yeah, Prince Harry. If you watch that wedding, look at the way that the European class comport themselves in the church. The somberness, the stiffness, the non-emotiveness, the stoicness, the, the, the dress, everything about them is mm-hmm. a reflection of European high culture. And the thing about European high culture is that it sees itself as the ultimate manifestation of this is what it really means to be a classy human being. You have to be like this, right? And so, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's your style. But the thing is that that expression is then moralized to say, if you want to be a moral human being, if you want to occupy a high moral plane, then you have to comport yourself this particular way and anyone who doesn't match that is seen as less moral or you know less educated less intelligent etc 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 so in european high culture then what you found in Meghan markle and prince harry's wedding was there was tension with the preacher Mm -hmm. because the preacher was african-american and he was emotional bro like (laughs) Mm -hmm. he he was in it man like his sermon that guy was feeling it and there was discomfort. Like, I, I remember reading comments on the news, you know, people commenting from the wedding. And there was a whole bunch of people saying, oh, that was out of place. He shouldn't have, you know, he shouldn't have been so excited. And some people were accusing him of trying to, like, take the opportunity to build his own platform. But what we really saw were two cultures clashing. We saw right. the emotional passion of the African-American. And we saw the stoic somberness of the Eurocentric right. high culture. So what we've tended to do is we've tended to more moralize that European high-class culture. And this, by the way, seeps into our conversations of dress in church as well, which is not a conversation that's found in scripture. It's it's something that emerged during the emergence of the middle class, but that's a separate conversation. We're going to talk about that some other other time. Um, But this European high culture this notion that this is this comport this way of comporting yourself is this is how the angels behave uh this is you know <laughs> this is uh this is how sacred people behave and w- w- when adventists use the term sacred music what they're really talking about is the kind of music that would be welcomed in a european high class setting you know um right. and what does and here i'm getting to my point here um <laughs> what does generally boils down to is that in the European high class culture, the spectrum of human emotion is denied. And there's only certain human emotions that are considered appropriate, right? Um, And so the whole concept of appropriate, inappropriate is like really, really exaggerated within European high class culture. So you have a full spectrum of human emotion and all of the color that comes with that. 
but there's a giant chunk of it that is like, no, that's actually, that's inappropriate. Never express yourself that way. And so things like anger and frustration and, you know, despondency and depression, you know, all those types of things are pushed away. Um, and Europeans, high class isn't the only one who does this. I, I think it's quite common in high class cultures in Asia as well. Although I don't know if they got that from the Europeans. I have no idea. So yeah, not schooled enough in, <laughs> to, 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 to comment on that. Um, but the sense that there's certain emotions that you just cannot express. But when I go to the Bible, man, I don't see that at all. I mean, David, the imprecatory Psalms, the Lamentations, um, you know, some of the stuff Jeremiah wrote, I mean, there's this full spectrum of emotion, Jesus going into the temple and flipping stuff upside down. And right. from a European high class perspective, from an Anglo centric perspective, we try and pretty that up, sanitize, but it's it. like, no, man, he had a whip and he was flipping tables and people ran like, <laughs> right. there's no prettying that up. But we struggle with that because it's like, here is Jesus expressing the full spectrum of human emotion. Mm -hmm. But generally in Adventist conservative worship, which is very restrained to that sort of European high culture, Anglo-centric expression, there's only certain emotions that are considered sacred. So mm -hmm. stillness and calmness and gentleness and peace and so then we want our music to only express those emotions and right. then anything that expresses enthusiasm excitement um you know uh or or even anger and frustration those are then relegated to the pile of inappropriate or unholy mm -hmm. now that was a giant essay right there um why not but with all good, of though. that said I am passing the ball back to you. Talk to me about. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, let me respond to, I mean, some of the things in your, like your essay, so-called, right? Fantastic. Um, yeah. I think, and this will probably play into the next thing when we talk about old versus new. One of the problems when we talk about Eurocentrism and how that manifests itself in the church is that on either the traditionalist or progressive side, there are a ton of anachronisms. And what I mean by that is you could say that like Anglican high church forms of self-expression or just like high society, British, classy, quote, whatever you want to call that is like stoic and reserved and has no place for like, negative emotional expression or like exuberant emotional expression if you're, if you're dealing with positive feelings right but like what's shakespeare you know what i mean like what mm -hmm. you, you, if you think about shakespeare and you're like oh wow we've got like extreme tragedy we've got like the creepy whatever that like halloween stuff that is in macbeth is you've mm -hmm. got the you know the borderline acid trip that is a midsummer night's dream like mm -hmm. you, you know you, you look at shakespeare and you're like bro this guy's all over the place and i mean <laughs> what what could possibly be the more stereotypical like anchor point of all high class british culture it's shakespeare but i mean he would have been provocative for his time you know you think about um you know i i, I let me start that sentence over i think about the way some of my english teachers explain to me like well shakespeare at his own time some of this material some of these plays would have been considered like crass and low class at the time and then it gets gentrified 
right? Like later generations pick it up and are like, oh, look at how great this is, right? Look at how genius this was, you know? Just look at the way uh, Star Wars prequel fans who were kids when those came out are talking about the prequels now. Revenge of the Sith is a genius movie, right? But I mean, if you asked the, the generations before them when those films came out, oh, it's garbage, right? The, the, in all the prequels are garbage. Now, the people who have that emotional attachment to them because there was the awe and wonder of childhood, which is really actually what makes Star Wars good is being a kid and watching Star Wars. And I'm saying that as a huge fan. But it's it's this anachronism, right? You're retrojecting in some extent. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying it's all that, right? Like a, a, a work can be genuinely good, right? But a huge part is the relationship of the audience to that work. So there is this piece when we say like, oh, you know, Europe is very expressive or like even British culture is not very expressive. It's like, well, until you find all of the, like yeah that's true if you ignore every counter example but this that's is true. the thing yeah. what what happens is we get a filtered um and kind of ad hoc selected mm-hmm. a curated list of things that are like oh this is what it was really like oh this is how it always was it was always whatever classical music was all geniuses no classical music was mostly unremarkable composers that we don't remember but the geniuses survived. And in some cases, like in the case of Bach, someone who was not considered particularly remarkable while he was alive has been preserved for us by generations after him of people he was too dead to meet, right? And it's, it's this idea that like yeah. people are selectively canonizing things from the past and saying, this is what we are, right? Yeah. It happens. I'm I'm basically eating my my next episode now, but like <laughs> um, it happens in every genre of art, in every genre of music. You know, like people will say, like, "Oh, what's wrong with rap these days? It's all these mumble rappers. It's all derivative. Oh, well, all all these new metalcore bands. It's all just like mindless breakdowns and auto tune singing." I'm like, bro, okay, in the '80s. I'm sure there were like a bajillion dime a dozen rappers who were just ripping off whoever was popular at the time and a dime a dozen Mm -hmm. thrash bands who were just ripping off whoever was popular at the time. And in the classical world, you bet your bottom dollar, there's tons of people who were doing very uninspired music that was just kind of copying whoever their big influences were. So it's, it's this thing where a lot of what we see as like the classy mode of expression and you know, by extension, the emotions that accompany it is heavily curated and it's very selective mm. and it's it's arbitrarily selected. Um, mm. I think to myself, like, uh, oh gosh, what else is something that's part of like, the Anglo tradition? A Beowulf? That's not yeah. hyper sanitized, you know, like <laughs> you got Grendel and his mother running around ripping people's arms off. It's like this isn't that's some right. like sanitized G rated thing. But we act like, I mean, that's part of the facade is saying, Mm. you know, from and I think it's especially an American thing to be like, oh, yeah, we're preserving all of the greatness of Western civilization in the form of, you know, pietism or puritanism or whatever you have. And it's like, oh, it was always this reserved, just like plain and beautiful and pleasant and everything's fine and dandy 
pretty stuff. But it's like, no, that's that's not all your culture was. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, so so we so we play off anachronism. Yeah, so we play off of this template. Yeah, that is like, I suppose a, a script. I suppose that it's it's like everyone align yourself with this because this is this is what it means to be sacred again coming back right. to the terms sacred sacred music that um some adventists use which i always feel like i die a little bit on the inside when i hear that phrase yeah <laughs> or like i vomit a little bit on the inside like Hur! um <laughs> it's the stipulative definition fallacy yeah yeah that's right it's like it's it's based on this template that if you were to parse it historically isn't even accurate right yeah because i think yeah. as well and look not a fan by any stretch of the imagination but i think as well of things like like opera um and there's a lot of heavy emotion in that i mean that definitely not my scene <laughs> sure. but it, it doesn't seem very stoic and you know flat to me right um at least from the outside looking in you know being someone who's not really into that space but right yeah well, so interestingly it, it, that you should mention that um and again, this will be me eating content from a later episode. But I mean, I'll talk about things as they come up, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is this is something that's fascinating to me because I'm also, to to some extent, to a major extent, an outsider to the classical music world, right? And I've I've known people who are like neck deep in it, and you know, I get along with most of the classical musicians I know, but. It's interesting because Ellen White had some very harsh things to say about the opera style of singing. She actually, you can find quotes where she says, like, the kind of voice used in opera is completely inappropriate for the worship of God. And so um, there have been singers who are trained in that tradition who have had a very tumultuous relationship with Adventism because of that. I mean, literally, their livelihood is essentially branded a sin. Uh, just because of one Ellen White statement, um, which I would go, I would venture to say she's probably wrong about that. Um, like I don't know what could possibly make that statement correct. Like what could what could that moral judgment actually be based on? You know, so yeah, it's 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 one of those things that befuddles me. It's, but it's, yeah, it's, it's never really real explained, thing. is it? It's just kind of no. dropped in there without much context and explanation. I, I've often wondered if what she was attempting to say um, is that it's it it it's inappropriate in in corporate worship because obviously people can't sing along to an opera song. But I don't know. I suppose it's it's impossible to really know because there's statements that she's said throughout her life that can seem pretty harsh. And then later on, she'll repeat the statement, but there's more nuance to it. And then later on, there's even more nuance. And so you can sort of see this progression in how she changed her mind or how she grew in her understanding over time. But then there's right. some statements where she just like dropped one line and never brought it up again. And I think it's really, really dangerous to build a moral view of anything on any on, on, on statements like that. Where I mean, even right. in scripture in the do in the work of theology we say like you you need uh, uh you can't just build a theology off of one text yeah. you know and you can't build a practice off of one text either so yeah. you know where where um um i think in for example where paul talks about this is just one strange little verse where he makes this mention about being baptized for the dead and that's completely misinterpreted oh, yeah. 
you know, obviously by Mormons and they do this baptism on behalf of the dead. And, right. you know, obviously one of the responses that most theologians would say is, dude, you can't take that one text, which is dubious and difficult to understand and mm -hmm. uh, never really expanded and explained and create a whole system around it. So anyways, I'm blabbing now, but you get my point. Yeah, I, I think it's unfair to do that with, with Ellen White as well. Yeah. And it's one of those things to, I mean, I'll, I'll save some of these things for when we actually talk about the episode, when we talk about her more in depth, but it's one of those things that I think people just need to be more careful about because it does end up affecting people. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it often gets overlooked. Uh, and part of the problem of fixating exclusively on Eurocentrism is that it overlooks the fact that it's like, oh yeah, like the Adventist opera singer actually does face barriers within the denomination mm -hmm. and and faces mm -hmm. discrimination because ellen white specifically said basically opera singing is bad yeah. or at least made statements that could be taken that way mm -hmm. um and it, it's interesting because to if you look at some of the further elaboration she gives to that it she insists kind of uh, like the voices must be soft and subdued and she uses the mm -hmm. word modulated which to the modern music producer is just more confusing than helpful. I was like, did she want a phaser effect on it? Like what? Modulation? <laughs> she wanted some tremolo, some, some uh. flanger, like what? But I, I mean, modulation means a bajillion things in music, depending mm -hmm. on like what you're talking about. Right. So that's right. It, yeah. Yeah. Don't overuse Ellen White, but I guess we'll save some of these for the Ellen White episode. Suffice for it to sure. say, to bring us back on topic, Ellen White herself had a lot to say about music that was written in the Bible. And she herself said, she has numerous statements where she's like, oh yeah, the, the, the biblical authors, they wrote good songs, right? Like they, mm -hmm. they, they wrote songs for holy purposes and like, she'll make a contrast with how it's used today. Uh, if you give me a second, I can probably actually pull up um, a, sure, a couple of quotes uh, because I think that it's, um, it's good to not just like, quote her um out out of context or like you know, allude to what she said okay here we go um this is from education the chief subjects of study in these schools of the prophets that's of the prophets is like a clarification added in right that's that's like in square brackets mm -hmm. so the chief subjects of study in these schools were the law of god with the instruction given to moses sacred history sacred music and poetry dot, 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 sanctified intellect brought forth from the treasure house of God, things new and old, and the spirit of God was manifested in prophecy and sacred song. Okay. So education page 47, but who knows what page it's on, depending on what edition of that you have. Um, <laughs> let's see. Music was made. This is from, I believe, patriarchs and prophets. Music was made to serve a holy purpose, to lift the thoughts to that which is pure and noble and elevating and to awaken in the soul devotion and gratitude to God. What a contrast between the ancient custom and the uses to which music is now too often devoted. How many enjoy this gift to exalt self instead of using it to glorify God. A love for music leads the unwary to unite with world lovers in pleasure gatherings where God has forbidden his children to go. Thus, that which is a great blessing when rightly used becomes one of the most successful agencies by which Satan allures the mind from duty and from the contemplation of eternal things. Patriarchs and Prophets, uh, page 594. Again, who knows what page that's on, depending on the edition you have. Um, <laughs> so when, when I look at that, she's like, okay, music was made to serve a holy purpose. Okay, sure, I'm with you so far. To lift the thoughts to that which is pure, noble, and elevating. Okay, interesting point. Interesting point. But can you sustain that statement 
as an overall general broad statement, as an all-encompassing statement, and also affirm the full inspiration of scripture. Because mm. if you do that, you if you do that in like a rigid and like inflexible way, you will immediately run into a massive problem when you get to Lamentations, when you get to the imprecatory Psalms, when you get to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when you get to the Song of Solomon, when you get to certain parts of Revelation, it's just constant. When you get mm. to Judges, you know, chapter 19, like it, the kinds of things that are included in the Bible in poetry form often, not all, I mean, the Judges example wouldn't qualify, but that's narrative. That's a different art form. But the point is the art that gets into the Bible is not just like a little bit PG-13. Like it's downright gruesome at times, downright horrifying at times. And and the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we just selectively not remembering that when we when mm-hmm. we look at these kinds of statements? Um, how, how do we reconcile that? And this is one of the things that I think historically has been difficult for people, right? Like famously, Augustine had a very hard time with the violence in the Old Testament. And I think the only way he was able to start reconciling it was that Alexander of Alexandria was like, well, think of it as like metaphor for spiritual battle. And he's like, oh, okay, I can I can onboard that easier mm-hmm. than just like killing everybody. Right. And you you think to yourself, like there's like the 400s of 500, 400s for Augustine. Like that's a question people still struggle with when they come to the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. But I find it very, very interesting that people who have a tendency to be the most like, quote unquote, legalistic and maybe like stereotyped as old covenant types will also completely miss the aesthetic experience of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. They will Mm. completely miss the the quote unquote borderline nihilism of Ecclesiastes, right? The cynicism in there. They'll, They'll miss the emotional impact of it. They will completely miss the the rage in like, I can't remember if it's Psalm 137 or 139, but it's the, dang, I can't remember. It's, it's one of those two for sure, but it's the one that ends with like, it's a diatribe against Babylon and says like, it's the one that starts with by the rivers of Babylon, uh, we wept as we remembered Zion, right? And it ends with, blessed is the one who dashes the heads of your little ones on the rocks. Right. It's literally saying like infanticide. Right. Blessed is the committer of infanticide. And that's scripture. And that not yeah. only is that scripture. That's, that's that Psalm 137, nine, hymn. by the way. There you go. Psalm 137. I knew it was one of those. But yeah, that's verse nine to be specific. It's, it's so <laughs> violent. Mm, it's mm. so violent. Um, it's, it's funny to me. Um, there's a I can't remember the title of the song. Uh, one of Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir's albums for those who are in the like gospel scene. And I know Brooklyn in some ways, like they're classic and they're also by today's standards, maybe like light gospel, but like whatever Brooklyn Tabernacle's gospel music, I I don't think has to be qualified. They have a song um, that is essentially setting Psalm three to music, right? Um, It's the one that's like, it has the lines about like, I lay down and sleep and I wake for you sustained me. Uh, Thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head, right? That, I mean, just by saying it, I think many people who listen to this will probably have that Brooklyn Tabernacle 
choir song come to their minds because it's just so iconic. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a very standard church practice to set the Psalms to music, but it's very interesting um, that the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir version of that Psalm completely leaves out the line that says, the Lord strikes the wicked on the cheek and shatters their teeth in their mouth. Right. They just, they're like, ah, I don't know how we're going to work that into this power ballad. Like for thou, O Lord, are a shield, break the teeth of my enemy in their mouth. Like, Oh, (laughs) how are you going to, how are you going to put that in there? Right. Yeah. And it took, it took a, a Christian metal band by the name of demon hunter to finally give me that line from Psalm three in a song. Mm. where they um there's they have a song called storm the gates of hell um and something to the effect of like broken teeth a shattered jaw 10 to 1 like as in being outnumbered behold my god and and i'm like Mm. oh wow that's that's intense like what a what a statement but it's i mean the song is storm the gates of hell it's literally about fighting (laughs) the forces of satan right and so but that's those are very different emotional standpoints, right? Both drawing from the same psalm, but you realize very quickly when you deal with the biblical material that they're not writing songs in a style that connects with the same emotional associations we have with music styles today, mm-hmm. right? You realize very quickly, like, okay, whatever Psalm 3 was, whatever it might have sounded like, it was not this radio-friendly gospel power ballad. Yeah, yeah. It couldn't possibly be that. Yeah. Right? There is a combat context to at least some of it. I mean, mm-hmm. that will you are a shield for me. I, that, that's literally mentioning a weapon, right? So, like, it's, it's one of those things where you just have to, to think about it for a couple seconds to realize there's a lot more going on here than we would probably be comfortable with. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time, but this is going to continue for quite a few episodes. So make sure you keep tuning in, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about it and uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the Story Church Project dot com and check out the new bible study guide the road a journey through the narrative of scripture the second edition is now available and this is a bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption the story of scripture to millennials zeds uh, post-church unchurched postmodern generations make sure you check that out get your hands on a copy and i will catch you next week (laughs) 